some UFO-related stories have blown up in the media lately. Some good, and some not so good. We'll discuss those, and we talk with Ben Hansen about a recent discovery related to the 1942 Battle of Los Angeles UFO incident, right now on UFO Mod Pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. I'm Maureen Elsbury. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you missed our previous show, you can always find our episodes on our website, RoguePlanet.tv. But UFO Mod Pod is also on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can find us there, too. Well, we won't leave you hanging for a moment. We're going to jump right into some UFO news. A missile-like UFO streaked across the dark sky in the night of Saturday, November 7th. Now, this UFO, I'm sure everybody's heard about it, but it soared just off the coast of California near Los Angeles over the Pacific Ocean and was seen in many states. I was in Las Vegas at the time, and I got a bunch of calls and, and texts and messages about it. Um, I didn't actually see it, but people in Nevada did see it. It was also seen in Arizona, in Idaho, in Washington, so over a, a wide range of states. And law enforcement agencies and news desks were flooded with calls from concerned witnesses who observed this mysterious aerial objects. Uh, people were posting all sorts of photos and videos on social media showing this strange object streaking across the sky. And even journalist and author, author Annie Jacobson, who has written controversial books such as Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top secret military base, and The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top secret military research agency, was posting. She was like live tweeting this thing it was, as it was happening, and she posted a video that was apparently shot by her son, also showing the object streak through the sky. It's a really cool video. Uh, and actor David Duchovny from The X-Files even got in on the social media action, um, using it as a platform to promote the upcoming revival of X-Files. Uh, he posted a, a silly joke that said, you guys are early. I said January 24th. That's when X-Files premieres. Although an extraterrestrial spacecraft and the torrid meteor shower were offered as possible explanations for this strange thing streaking across the sky... The U.S. Navy was quick to claim responsibility for the UFO. It was apparently a Trident II missile fired at sea in the Pacific Test Range off the coast of Southern California by the USS Kentucky. Uh, just a missile test, and since they've done another one, it was during the day, so people didn't see it. But uh, it wasn't completely unexpected. It just caught people off guard. But an announcement was made the previous Friday, November 6th, one day before this UFO sighting, that secret military operations in the Pacific were going to take place. And they were forcing traffic from LAX inland for an entire week. So people should have ex suspected that something was going to happen, but it did put on an incredible show, caught people off guard. Uh, so it spawned a lot of conspiracy theories after the Navy came out so quickly to claim responsibility to people. Didn't want to accept that explanation. Really, really keen on the UFO explanation. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is no surprise to us over the last decade, pretty much every time an odd missile launch happens, we see floods of very, uh, heavily covered in the media reports of UFOs. Um, and, of course, I knew as soon as I published the story about it, because I, like you, Jason, received a billion emails this weekend about this, 
did you see this? Did you see this? Text messages, everything else. Um, I knew when I posted it, when you know it was announced that it was the Trident missile, that there was going to be a lot of backlash. And a lot of people weren't going to believe it. I got comments such as, oh, that's an unusual missile, or the mil- oh, of course, the military would never lie to us. Or, and know. why would they shoot it so close to a major city? Right. And, and the thing that drives me nuts about this, and you know, people are allowed to have their own opinions, and I will uh, let them do that, but what drives me nuts about it is the pictures are so conclusive to me that it is a missile. I mean, we've seen so many of these pictures before. They yep. all have the same characteristics. Uh, we've watched live video of it. If you look at similar events, not everything is conspiracy, you know. So, um, and again, we had a warning of this one um, that it it looks suspiciously like a missile. <laughs> yep, and as we like to say, sometimes UFOs that look like missiles are missiles. <laughs> but the media went nuts with this story. It was covered all over, and the, the media likes to, when there's any sort of buzz, even in a small population uh, area, if there's a buzz at all, media outlets around the world run with it, and it's the cool thing now to run headlines that say, West Coast freaks out about ufo invasion everybody's freaking out about a ufo over california just creating this sensational headline uh creating the illusion that it was panic people weren't panicked mostly people were posting their photos and videos they were curious uh they thought it was cool they were just beautiful yeah people were oh this is awesome check it out what is it Nobody was freaking out. I'm sure some people were freaking out, but there wasn't a mass panic. There wasn't a freak out, and that's certainly the picture that a lot of media outlets were trying to paint. And another story that blew up and was covered by media outlets around the world uh, came shortly after this. You've most likely seen that photo of the freaky-looking alien creature in California that someone posted on Facebook. And this is another thing that all of us, I'm sure, were asked by so many people what we knew about it, and we're all too happy to to tell you that it's probably not an alien, and it wasn't even in California. So uh, here, here are the basics. So on Sunday, November 8th, a Facebook user posted a photo showing this bizarre creature. She claims she found it in her yard and that it was on the night of the strange UFO that turned out to be a missile. Uh, she said she heard a, heard a scream went outside and found the thing. When she found it, it was already dead. What did she do with it? She buried it. Uh, but after taking photos, at least that's her claim. The photos spread across the Internet, spawned headlines around the world. But just with a little digging, you can find all sorts of red flags with these claims. Now, first of all, the person who posted it. She's a young girl in San Jose, California. She has two Facebook pages, one of which was created specifically on the day this happened and for the purpose of promoting these photos. And then she got flooded with so many people, uh, so many friend requests because of these photos that she had to create uh, a page, a Facebook page, so uh, people could like her there as well. So that's interesting. And she was posting kind of jokey comments about it. But the other big red flag is these same photos were posted by someone else in Pleasant Hope, Missouri, not San Jose, California. And sure, you could say, well, they stole her photos. But the nice thing about timestamps is you can tell that these photos from Pleasant Hope, Missouri, were posted on Thursday, November 5th. That's two days before this other person claims she discovered the alien in her yard. 
And there are even other people who claim that these photos were taken by that person in Missouri, were stolen by that person in Missouri from a news report from a year ago from an incident that happened in Pennsylvania. I could find no evidence of that, but that does not mean that doesn't exist. But people were offering the suggestion that this unusual looking creature is most likely a deer fetus or a, a deformed cow fetus or even a dog. But we don't know exactly where the photos came from. But what we do know is that they did not come from this woman. I don't even know why people bother. <laughs> like, why? I'll tell you why they bother. Why because look at, the- look at the attention it garnered. Right. It did exactly for her what she wanted. But, mm-hmm. but again, though... She's been called out. I mean, there is... She has, but she stands by her claim. And she responds to people saying, oh, they stole my photos, and I've had to watermark my photos because people keep stealing them. Yeah. But she she stands mm-hmm. by her claim. So, but she's, she's enjoying her, her little bit of fame. But these photos and the claims behind them are just the latest example of why... Photos of alleged UFOs and extraterrestrials require, as we love to say here, cautious skepticism. Please, people. Yes, please, please. I couldn't even look at this one, Jason. I immediately, when I saw the little mini thumbnails, mm-hmm. as it were, of them, I said, nope, not even not even trying. I'm These with you, buddy. I, I, I had the, the same response, but after, after so many people asking about it and seeing it just spread like wildfire, I, I felt that I had to chime in and... and you do a little digging to, to find something to point people to. I'm so happy you did. Uh, I mean, again, these are not the kind of stories we like to cover um, right. because of the, you know, such contention with them and just such, you know, sensationalism, as it were. But um, right. I'm happy and- you did, and I'm happy that you sort of put a timeline to it so that we could get to the nitty-gritty and find the, the original source. And with a lot of these hoaxes, there there are simple red flags right in front of right in front of you it's it's easy to find if you just spend a couple minutes and actually look into uh you know the claims that are being made the people behind them the source of whatever is being claimed and you can find holes in a lot of these things pretty quickly right and and it's here's one thing you know she claimed oh i buried the body in the backyard if you saw something that unusual you would probably put it in a box and try to get it tested somewhere or take it to a professional and say, this was in my yard. What the hell is this? Right. A, for your own safety of maybe it's something that would be attracting things into your yard that would damage your crops or eat your dogs or, you know, you never know. And so it just seems so far-fetched. And it would be very simple to back up her claims if she would would then go – Dig it back up, take more photos, have people test it, you know, do some follow-up. But that's not going to happen nope. because she doesn't have a buried body in her backyard. And also, I mean, not to say I know what aliens might look like, but these weird creatures that always wash up on the shore that have clear, you know, waterlogged look to them or, you know, other strange creatures people find in the desert – if it looks so like an undeveloped alien, fetus, yeah. yeah. If it looks so weird and fake looking, guarantee you it's probably not an extraterrestrial civilization that has fallen to Earth and couldn't figure out how to keep its arms on and right. <laughs> well, other you know, things. Predators, well, Jason. Yeah, that's true. 
But uh, like Ryan said, these are not the, the types of stories that we, we enjoy covering, but it is important for people to have uh, basic information to base their opinions on. But uh, Ryan, let's talk about a story that is a good story and, and uh, one that uh, th- these types of stories I'm excited to talk about. I hope so. I hope it's a good one, guys. Um, yeah, I wanted to bring up the recent UFO activity happening in India. Uh, this all began on October 27th, when an air traffic controller reported seeing a UFO over the Indira Gandhi International Airport in Delhi, India. Uh, he reported that he'd seen an object, solid in structure, uh, sort of hovering in the airspace. And, but nothing seemed to show up on radar, radar so it was basically ignored. Um, but then a few days later, on October 30th, an Air Force officer on duty in the air traffic control tower reported seeing three UFOs over a nearby runway. Uh, an Air Force helicopter was sent out to investigate, but again, nothing was found. And after this second incident, it became clear that, you know, these reports kept flooding in. So something had to be done. So members of the Intelligence Bureau, Indian Air Force, Delhi Police, Bureau of Civil Aviation Security, and the Central Industrial Security Force They held an emergency meeting and gave the Indian Air Force the order to shoot down anything unidentifiable that was breaching the airport's airspace. And this, guys, this came on the tail end of um, other sightings in the area. I mean, we saw in the news that this past summer in Kampur, India, a young boy took a very clear photograph of a saucer-shaped UFO. And also in September, a UFO was photographed over Assam in northeast India. Interestingly, this area is rumored to be a hotspot for UFO reports, and there are also rumors that there may be an underground UFO base deep in the Himalayas. Uh, Most believe that it may be drones that the pilots were seeing recently, and we can't throw out that possibility, obviously. Um, But the order to shoot down is always sort of a last resort, and um, many think that the Indian government may have been on high alert because of a recent Indian-African foreign summit in the area, which covered topics like climate change and terrorism being the number one thing. So with unknown objects being threatening, threatening national security, you can't really blame them for such a dramatic order to shoot down anything or uh, to play to duck hunt, as it were, with these craft of unknown origin. So... Again, we don't really know what this was, guys, but it was interesting that they went to such lengths to say that shoot down anything in the in the area. And this comes also on the tail end of the WTF space junk that we talked about last, you know, on our last episode, uh, landing in Sri Lanka. So a lot of activity coming out of India, and I thought it was definitely interesting and had to be brought up. So, well, and here's the thing: I mean, the the airport has in the past seen drones and like craft in the area and these aren't just you know like baggage handlers or something as these witnesses these are people in the air traffic control tower and members of the indian air force right describing these objects seeing these objects and identifying them as something unidentifiable (laughs) so uh you know, these, these are people who are used to seeing things in the sky, used to seeing the, the things around the airport. They have seen drones before. So, like you said, it, it, you would think they would uh, have some pretty, pretty good reason to place security personnel on high alert, to deploy the Air Force, and to give the order to shoot down UFOs. That's pretty severe. 
It is, and we've seen this many times before. Um, but uh, there were other reports saying that pilots were being distracted by lasers, mm -hmm. and you know that is just deadly and dangerous mm -hmm. right there. Right. Whether it was people on the ground doing this as a joke or whatnot, um, yeah, they do need to go to extreme measures. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of lives are at risk when things like this are happening in a commercial airport or with the Air Force itself. So well, Here's another interesting element to this case. Um, the air traffic control personnel, at least some of them, claim that uh, at least one of the UFOs was detected on radar, mm -hmm. but uh, officially there is no evidence of any unidentified craft appearing on radar. So who knows why that's the case, but uh, it's interesting to have testimony from somebody who is observing the radar saying, yes, it was on radar. And then the official word is, no, there's no evidence that anything was on radar. Yeah. And I just think it's really interesting. Uh, it seems a lot like both India and the border with China, obviously we had mm -hmm. so much flack in 2012 for unknown sightings that the yeah. military air force was reporting um, that, I mean, most people think most likely were Chinese lanterns, but unsure there was a lot of red flags with that. And then I you have disagree now, with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. There was a lot of red flags with that mm -hmm. idea that the, that was what the, they were seeing. Yeah. And now we have, uh, airport sightings, which may or may not be drones. Um, but so far, I mean, this, this recent airport one is very new. The India-China border case is still unexplained. So what is going on over there? <laughs> yeah, and these are, these, these are fantastic cases because of, of the witnesses involved, you know, qualified observers um, and military deployment. I mean, when you're talking about witnesses to a case and, and things that are, are verifiable, that there's something in the air and things are happening um, at a military level, that's that's a genuine UFO there, folks. <laughs> it is it. unexplained. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, one one last thing I want to touch on here, just because it was brought to my attention recently, and I don't know why, but... Uh, Petitions, petitions to get governments to disclose information about UFOs. Um, this is kind of old hat by now. Lots of petitions have been circulated trying to get the government, the U.S. government primarily, to spill their secrets and let us know everything about UFOs. And I think we alluded to it in our last episode. But, you know, th these petitions have been problematic in the past, in all of our opinions, uh, primarily because of the, the wording chosen is very, uh, how you say, uh, difficult to swallow, um, confrontational, accusatory, uh, something that's not really going to get a favorable response to those you're trying to get a response from. Specifically, I'm talking about uh, back, I think it was 2011, um, the White House launched a section on their website called We the People that allows anybody to put up a petition and then get signatures. And if you get enough signatures, meet a certain threshold, then the White House will issue a response. And uh, a big one was issued or, or circulated, started and circulated by Stephen Bassett, the Paradigm Research Group. And that wanted uh, the White House to acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race rather than just saying, let us know what you know about UFOs. Number one, accuse them of lying, hiding information, and that aliens are here. Now, whether or not 
the, any of those are true, I'm not going to comment on that. But when you're having a petition trying to get somebody to give you information, when you're already coming out of the gate saying, you lied to us, you know the answers, the aliens are here, so why don't you just tell us, <laughs> you're not going to have a fav favorable outcome. Well, there have been a couple of those uh, through the We the People. Um, one got a response, and it was a very expected response. We don't know of any evidence to say that aliens have been here, but we're still looking. Uh, people didn't like that, of course. But there is a, another website that has petitions. It's a, an online activist network. The website is avaz.org. It's A-V-A-A-Z dot O-R-G. And there's a petition on this website that calls for full government disclosure of ET presence on Earth. Same idea, but this one's going after the United Nations, asking the Secretary General to call on all members of the United Nations who have knowledge. And again, wording. It yes. says, we call on United Nations who have knowledge of benevolent extraterrestrial beings engaging with humanity to now openly declare the truth that this, this disclosure handled with discernment and integrity will initiate a new era of peaceful communication, advance energy and travel systems that can heal this planet and transform living conditions for all people. That sounds wonderful and happy, but seriously, if you're trying to get the United Nations to talk about UFOs, that's not the way to go about it. And they're specifically asking for benevolent. So if the United Nations knows about malevolent extraterrestrials, they can write back and say, sorry, we don't know about any benevolent extraterrestrials. And they're off the hook. But yeah, just being so specific and, and, and targeted with, with the wording is why a lot of these petitions fail. And I will point out that this petition, although still active on this activist network, was posted in late 2013. And it only has 18,000 signatures. Mm. For some reason, it's still circulating, well, but it I don't me... think they're going to get a response from the UN. No, and this is something that, you know, drove me nuts. I mean, uh, when we the per people first launched, obviously, they had a certain number of signatures and they upped it to be larger because they were getting so many ridiculous um, sort of petitions. And I had a lot of people, you know, spread this one, uh, sign this one over the last couple of years. And I finally started telling people, I'm not going to sign this petition because I know for a fact, A, it's worded wrong and B, it's not going to do anything. There's, if you think that the government is just going to announce that, oh yeah, secretly we've been uh, communicating with extraterrestrials for the last, you know, 60 plus years. Uh, and since you petitioned us for the answer, here it is. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They will find some sort of way around answering that question legitimately if that's what they're going to do. Um, so to me, it was just I'm not going to waste my time signing a petition that I believe is, like you said, Jason, it's worded completely wrong. Right. And I'm not going to get behind and support an effort that uh, is worded that way and I think is going about things the wrong way. I mean, it, it doesn't move things forward. If anything, it perpetuates the resistance for these government bodies to even address the topic. Right. Yeah, and guys, we've talked about this many times. Like, disclosure comes from the people, and it's up to us to figure out what disclosure we want and what disclosure they're willing to give if they ever were to do that. And we've said before, like, we're probably not going to like the answer we get, no matter how we word it. Um, 
So, yeah, I think the whole petition thing is something we shouldn't be focusing our efforts on. And we should be focusing on civilian research and on things like UFO data, where we have scientists who are willing to look into this. We the people is great. um, But again, the people who have the time to put these petitions together are the people who are putting things out like a benevolent civilization here on our planet. Not something I think the three of us want to really focus on. So yeah, let's let's move on and let's get the scientists involved and let's go from there. I'm all for starting discussions at the government level. It needs to happen. Does the government know more about UFOs than it lets on? I'm pretty sure that's the case. Absolutely. But uh, So it would be great to find out what that is. But so, so I'm all for disclosure in that sense. But anything more than that, you're right, Maureen. It, 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 we've said it before and, and we'll say it again. It, it's not going to happen. They're not going to come out and say, announcement, attention, everybody. We've lied to you forever. We are liars. <laughs> and you already know we're liars, so you won't be mad at us. But we lied. Here's what we know. Um, they're living underground. They control Surprise, us. Your mom's an alien. So, yeah. <laughs> deal with it, people. It's not going to happen. We could speculate all day, but uh, you know the most likely scenario is something will happen that can't be avoided, and they'll say, "Oh, hey, look, we we did find a, a UFO. Here it is," and that's going to be the end of it. They're not going yep. to then open the vault and say, "And just so you know, we've known about this for sixty years. Surprise!" Let's get a petition started about the true intentions of a Mars colonization. I would definitely sign that one. Did the Martian actually happen? Is Matt Damon actually stuck on Mars? Yes. Such a conspiracy. (laughs) Well, guys, in our effort to provide a modern introduction to the UFO phenomenon for a new generation, on each episode of UFO Mod Pod, we highlight a historical UFO case. As we mentioned on the previous episode, the Kenneth Arnold incident of 1947 is typically viewed as the beginning of the modern UFO era. But that incident was by no means the beginning of the UFO phenomenon. So we will, on occasion, jump back to earlier cases because there are some good ones. And we're doing that right now. Today we're highlighting the the peculiar Aurora, Texas UFO incident of 1897. Here are the basics of the case. On the morning of April 17, 1897, a slow-moving UFO crashed into a windmill located on a farm belonging to a judge, J.S. Proctor. This uh, UFO reportedly exploded, spreading debris over acres, just debris all over the place. And among the wreckage was apparently a body of the pilot, which was described as a badly disfigured, weird-looking body, and referred to as both a Martian pilot... And not an inhabitant of this world. The body was even buried in the local cemetery. Some of the UFO was reportedly buried with the pilot. And the rest was dumped in a well beneath the damaged windmill. I like this case, guys, just because it was reported in newspapers, allegedly witnessed by people. And the most fascinating thing of all, this weird pilot of whatever crashed into the windmill. It's a very famous case. And it's been investigated a lot by different sources. Mm -hmm. But, Jason, I am erring on the side of thinking that this case might be an actual hoax. Mm -hmm. And why is that, Maureen? Well, (laughs) there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the town was in a lot of trouble. Uh, They were looking for uh, situations to sort of boost exposure to the town, um, sort of to recoup their losses 
so to speak. But anyways, a lot of the evidence uh, that different investigations have led to, such as most of them were TV shows. So yes, we take it with a grain of salt. Uh, MUFON has investigated this. Well, there's a lot of um, evidence to suggest there maybe wasn't a windmill here at all. (laughs) Maybe there was. There have been... Yeah, there are conflicting reports on that. Different investigations. There were claims that said there wasn't, but then they found evidence that there was. Right, and there's uh, conflicting reports about there was a gravestone found Mm -hmm. with a UFO on it. Um, metal detector detected something at first and now it doesn't and they removed the gravestone. There's a lot of red flags and maybe some people will think, oh no, government conspiracy. Well, yeah, there's certainly elements here uh, for conspiracy um, and that can go either way because there were multiple attempts to exhume this body and they were all denied. So that could be you could say that's because there was no body and the town was just perpetuating their hoax they didn't want to be found out so they wanted to keep up the myth that there was an alien body down there so they kept refusing these requests but then you could say there was a body and they didn't want anybody to have access to it very true it's interesting (laughs) there are a lot of interesting angles and and you know, different different results from different investigations. So it's one of those interesting cases. It's it's fascinating because it was 1897 as well. But you're right. I think the largely the consensus is that this was a gimmick to try to save a dying town. And I'm going to stick with my opinion on that. I will do any sort of further research or if people want to send me things to disprove my thoughts on it, you're more than welcome to. Marine at RoguePlanet.com or .tv, sorry. But um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sometimes we have evidence that situations are actually just hoaxed, you know, fabrications that people have come up with in order to promote something or to, again, promote a saving, you know, save a dying town. And that's a good point. I mean, it it seems like people try to pretend that hoaxing UFOs is this new thing that just started happening recently with Photoshop. Hoaxing UFOs has happened since the beginning of UFOs. I mean... Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, look at Roswell, another sort of remote dying place that, uh, you know, not to say that Roswell was hoaxed in any way, shape or form, but um, look at how much attention it garnered after that. We have the International UFO Museum there. We have a festival every year that brings, you know, yeah. almost a million dollars in tourism to the town. So it's it's this thing of playing off of a significant event, how much tourism can that drive how much money can it drive in that way i do agree with you maureen i do think this case specifically was to garner attention for a dying town so i'm gonna go with you on that and i'm sure we'll get some hate mail but um that's what this is all about right yeah for sure what <laughs> what, what do you think we would definitely <laughs> love to yeah we would love to hear what what your opinions are on this case uh if you're familiar with the details so do send those our way, and uh, if we get some interesting responses, we'll definitely read them on the next episode. As we mentioned earlier, history is filled with documented UFO incidents before the commencement of the quote-unquote modern UFO era, going all the way back to the beginning of written language. But rarely are there developments that shed new light on these old cases. But paranormal investigator and TV personality Ben Hansen recently uncovered a new fascinating detail concerning the 1942 Battle of Los Angeles. Ben is a former FBI special agent and lead investigator of sci-fi's factor-faked paranormal files. 
And he currently appears on a show called UFOs Declassified, airing on the Smithsonian Channel. Ben, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. You too. How are you guys doing? Good. We're always good. We're always good. Hey, (laughs) so you just got back recently from Travis Walton's Skyfire Summit. That was November the 5th through the 8th, and we're all kind of jealous because none of us got to attend that. So I'm curious to hear, how was it? Oh, it was was awesome. Um, You know, we had last year leading up to the event, and it was kind of a warm-up, and it just kept on growing. We had probably about 175 people. Um, the, the parking lot was just full. It was kind of funny because, you know, this is way out of the way. So it's kind of this really cozy, intimate setting. You know, you're literally 13 miles away from, from where the incident happened. And we, we meet in a, in a barn. So (laughs) the (laughs) barn has been converted into this, um, sort of event space. And you get people from all over the country. We had people even from Australia. Um, the anniversary day, of course, was November 5th. And it was important for Travis that we do it on the anniversary. But it's not the best weather conditions. It was actually blizzarding, um, if that's a word, when I was driving up there. So um, we had about, I don't know, probably six inches or so of snow on the ground. And the first day when we were supposed to do an excursion on the anniversary, the bus company we hired refused to go up there. Oh, no. Oh, no. So I had to run into Sholo with Travis, and we picked up uh, two four-wheel drive vehicles. We had two others coming, and we packed about 20 people in um, and, and got about 20 people into the cars that we could fit and took them up because some of them could only stay that one day. So we did get up to the site on the anniversary, did a little excursion, and then we took the rest of the people on Sunday. So um, we had about, gosh, about 150 people. So on that day, um, it was so muddy up there. They were taking school buses. And, you know, there's that turnout Mm -hmm. where – um, people park and Travis, I guess, kind of encouraged them to try and go down further so we could drop people off. And they got one of the school buses stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second one tried to tow them out and they got stuck. That's so amazing. <laughs> so at the end of the day, we had two school buses. We had a tow truck. Uh, I think it was like $1,900 to pull them out. So wow. Oh, quite, quite an adventure. But the the weekend was great. Uh, great speakers. Um, of course, not not everyone speaks, but only Travis really speaks on the um, event itself. And we had you know like David Childress from Ancient uh, Aliens. We had um, uh, Lynn Katai speaking about Phoenix Lights. Um, we had Peter Robbins. Uh, I was speaking, and. Um, Gosh, I, I, I know I missed a lot of the other things. But what was really cool was this is the first time I met Mike Rogers, uh, the crew boss. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. So he made it up and um, he said, I would have come last year, but nobody asked me. And uh, it was awesome. So we had him. We had John uh, Goulet, who was also on the crew. Um, we had Kenny 
or I'm sorry, Steve Pierce couldn't make it. His truck broke down on the way up. And um, we had, I forget his last name, but Don, who was the first deputy on the scene that arrived before the sheriff did um, when the, the crew reported that Travis was missing. Um, he was there. And it's really cool to see these guys and to see them now, you know, come together and, and be like, yeah, uh, we were practically kids. We were really young, you know, adults at the time. And, and um, the police officers were quite a bit older than them. And they were in that role of law enforcement. And I don't know if I believe these guys and, and you know, maybe they murdered their friend. And now to see them together and to see that the police officer is pretty much a believer and everything that happened, um, it's just really cool. That's, I think it's really interesting that Mike Rogers actually made it up because there's been so many years, you know, we happened to get Steve Pierce and Jungle and, and Travis all on the stage together a few years ago, but Mike Rogers was always this um, sort of, I don't want anything to do with it. At least that's what everyone was saying. So it's really interesting to hear, you know, nobody, nobody asked me um, or that he's changed his mind and is now willing to speak about it. Yeah. But um, I, I think that's, that's cool that it's happening and, and there's getting more exposure to the legitimacy of all of the events of that night. Um, but I have one question for you regarding this. It was snowing obviously on this day, but I was up there with you the year prior and it was probably one of the coldest nights of my entire life. Did the <laughs> snow cut through that cold or was it equally as cold that night? Oh no, no, it, it's hard to, to tell if it was colder uh, with or without the snow, but I think it was in like the high twenties. And, um, you know, we tried to do a sky watch, not up at the site, but down by the barn. And, um, it was, yeah, <laughs> we probably had about 15 people. I actually recorded something kind of cool that I'll post on my website, but it's more of a tutorial to show people what, um, uh, geostationary satellites look like. Um, because this thing was power. <laughs> You know, the term people are like, it's powering up, it's powering up. <laughs> well, it's actually, you know, from what I can see, it's stationary and it's the solar panels that are rotating and catching the sun's reflection. So it looks like it, it flashes, but it's rhythmic. At any rate, uh, only the diehards would stay out in this cold. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. And, and people... Gosh, I had three people lock their keys in their car, and I happened to have my lock picking set. So <laughs> I spent a good time just going around and opening people's cars. And <laughs> it sounds like, trades. <laughs> yeah, Ben, if you weren't there that weekend, it sounds like a lot of people may still be stranded up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is remote. I mean, Heber yeah. Overguard area is is uh, a good 30, 40 minutes away from the nearest city. So it's a cool location, though. And if we do this again, we're looking at expanding it. I would like to see it be more than just uh, the UFO conference. We're in, in prime area for um, the Mogion Monster. Mm -hmm. um, so there's Bigfoot stuff. There's, there's paranormal ghost hunting, haunted supposed locations around. I say we make this into just a big paranormal conference. Mm -hmm. I'm all for that. Yeah, that sounds yeah, awesome. It it would be fun, and in that way, um, we'll continue to do the Travis story and excursions because that's what brought us up there. But um, you know, from a business point, 
standpoint, um, it's really hard to put any event on. And if it's going to continue, even though our desire is to have as many people be there, participate, listen to the lectures, hear the stories, that's all well and good. But it takes hundreds of man hours and, and a lot of people's times who have their own day jobs. So you do have to treat it like a business. Um, it does have to generate a profit at least to pay people's salaries. Otherwise, um, we can't continue doing it. Good point. Well, it sounds like this year's event was really awesome. And and it's, just, it's such an experience to hear not only Travis, but the other people involved in, in the case, to hear them still talk about it um, today. And you can get a genuine sense of how they're still emotionally affected by what happened. I mean, you don't um, get that just by reading about the story, but when you hear these people talk about it in person so many years after the fact, decades after the fact, they're still emotionally affected by whatever happened. And that's that's really important, too, because when you see, for example, Mike Rogers next to Travis, and they're kind of recounting um, the, well, at least it was perceived by Mike that, that Travis was holding some some type of grudge against him for leaving him there. Mm. And I don't know if they've spoken about it much over the years. Um, it seems like that was, it wasn't really resolved, but to see them kind of rehash that and come to an understanding, that's hard to fake. I mean, it's it, seriously, if someone were to say, Hey, this whole thing is just made up. They <laughs> hoaxers just do not go to this uh, extent. To keep everything, you know, like or get organized as to, to how the, the scheme and hoax is going to plan out. And, hey, yeah, remember, you and I had this feud. we got to keep that up. We've got to do this. we got to do that. Right. This is legitimate. This is raw. And to see them sit down and to still have kind of these feelings they're working through and to hear their story in their own words, um, it, it makes the whole experience that much more legitimate and uh, important. Yeah, for sure. It's really cool that Mike was there. Glad they got together again. It's always great hearing those people talk about the incident. Well, Ben, you are currently on a show called UFOs Declassified, and it just premiered in the U.S. on November 8th on the Smithsonian Channel. The show had its original run back in January on History Canada, but people are seeing this in the U.S. for the first time. And for uh, the Smithsonian Channel, they started off with the 1942 Battle of Los Angeles. So most people are probably at least somewhat familiar with the Battle of Los Angeles. But for those who aren't, um, could you give us just a brief overview of what that case involves? Sure. Um, Battle of, of Los Angeles is the event that people refer to talking about um, 1942, February. I want to say it was the 21st. I should have this right at the top of my head. Um or, or 20, 25th. 25th, thank you. So February 25th, we're talking about just a couple months after Pearl Harbor, which happened in December of the previous year. And and literally um, that same week, just a couple days before, um, we had an incident where the Japanese had brought a submarine so close to Santa Barbara, they were able to, uh, I think it was maybe two weeks prior, they are able to shell... Uh, with torpedoes, one of our oil refineries. Mm -hmm. So the the country is is uh, on high alert. Everything's really tense. And um, during that night, they had a radar return 
of two inbound coming objects um, from the ocean heading east. And it put the whole city of Los Angeles into blackout. So they turned their lights off. It was mandatory that everyone shut everything off. Um, a lot of the TV radio stations went silent. And the, the, the thinking is, hey, if it is enemy um, air power and they're coming to bomb us, we want to make it really difficult for them to find their targets. So um, that happened. And then at about um, uh, 2 a.m., they sounded the air warning uh, or air raid sirens, and they assembled together. Uh, a lot of them were actual volunteers. Um, the air, ward, um, air wardens is what they called them. But they started manning their stations and getting to these different locations around the city. And the end result was about a half an hour of uh, a great air artillery show with, with a barrage of um, 50 caliber machine guns, 30 millimeter shells, mortars, everything with these uh, searchlights tracking something. And they didn't, the, to this day, the grand debate is were they tracking actually a tangible object or as uh, the army described it later, it was a case of war nerves. Um, they were just too jittery. And once one person starts shooting, they all start shooting. However, according to witnesses, um, a lot of them described one or several objects that uh, were like disc shaped and the, the lights were tracking them. And uh, there were over 1400 rounds of artillery shot. Mm -hmm. So it seems kind of unlikely that um, uh, even though those things can, you know, be um, shot quite quickly and you use a lot of ammunition, it seems quite unlikely they would do all that over a populated area where people eventually did end up dying from some of the shrapnel and stuff um, and take that risk if there was nothing they were shooting at. So you have one photo that appeared in the LA Times, just one. Um, it wasn't the next morning, it was two days after. And it shows the search beams converging on what looks like some, site, some type of a mass in the middle. And um, the legend is, hey, this is the object. This is what it is. Well, on our show Factor Faked, you know, we, we performed a lot of experiments to see if it could have been just the mortars or a cloud of debris or what it could have been that was in the middle of the search beam, because that's the only known photo we have. And we came to the conclusion that uh, basically it's still an unknown. We're not sure if that photo actually captured something. So we don't know if there was some type of unconventional craft. Uh, I, I really doubt it was a blimp of any sort or a balloon. And, and sort of with the Smithsonian, we picked up where um, Factor Fake left off. And I went to UCLA, was able to find what we thought was the original negative. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it was quite interesting what we discovered about this negative and possibly the photographer, which, which kind of leaves us with more questions than answers and wondering if there are more photos out there. So I'm still working with a couple people trying to track down um, information about the photographer because I still have hope that there's more photos and that might give us some more information. I'm glad you're still following up on that because obviously 
non-spoiler alert um <laughs> there you, like you said it, it kind of led into this bigger mystery of what the heck happened and there's a lot of components in this case that lead to a lot of other questions of whether or not you know a, an object did crash nearby edwards air force base or whether you know there was an object there at all or whether the object had any sort of damage to it um a lot of a lot of questions and i think you know, in the episode, you go and talk to Bob Wood, who has documents that uh, hint at UFOs being involved in this. And I'm really glad at the way you went about this, because I have a lot of questions as to the authenticity of these documents. I love Bob Wood, but you got to think, you know, we do have some sort of evidence that is possible that military, you know, Air Force people have led people to believe that they are having experiences or they're seeing UFOs because it was easier to cover up these secret projects. So um, in regards to that, I mean, do you think that there is a possibility that this was just some extremely secret Air Force project or uh, is, might there be some sort of other mystery to it? Um, that is a good question. I think that's probably the least likely scenario that I would go with. Uh, that it was a, a secret project because it would be bad timing to try and keep that secret. Well, not, you know, by not letting the rest of the military and its branches know what you're doing, why would you fly something over downtown LA during the height of this, um, this tension, you know, an alert and, and not expect it to be shot at or people to freak out and to cause um, actual civilian deaths like it did. Right. So, uh, you have all that extra land. I mean, Area 51 was was kind of uh, acquired in the early 50s, not too long after. But but they had, uh, you know, plenty of, of space in Nevada and, uh, you know, other locations where, where testing of secret craft could proceed. And so I don't think that that's a, probably a real probable situation um, with, with – uh, a secret project of ours. Now, could it have been the Japanese? Well, that's where we get conflicting reports. The The first reports that came out actually said that there was a downed Japanese airplane um, in South Central LA. So <laughs> this was reported by the police station and the police station records supposedly that they cordoned off the area and were, were taking care of this plane. But when the the, the dust finally settled, there was no plane. There was no debris. There was nobody talking about captured enemy aircraft. So it's like, it's kind of like today with the news, you know, <laughs> something happens and the news starts reporting all the most wild things. It turns out that none of it was true. So they had a problem with it back then as well. However, supposedly there were witnesses who saw plane wreckage or wreckage of some sort. So we really don't know what to believe. And it's, um, it, it really truly is one of those mysteries where we only have a few witnesses left. And what the witnesses have said was there was definitely something in the air. Some people saw planes, some people saw an unconventional looking uh, disc shaped object that was being hit by, by bullets and it did nothing to it. And then you have the far out rumors that the thing actually landed in the Pacific Ocean and a Navy ship recovered it. So 
Um, all sorts of things with this one, and I, I don't know that we're going to get to the bottom of it. Well, the Battle of Los Angeles episode of UFOs Declassified has already aired here in the States, and it's aired multiple times in Canada. So if you're willing to, I'd like to go a little bit into some spoilers and talk more about the photo and what you found. Sure. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Just anybody who wants to be surprised, stop listening now and go watch the episode. But uh, you, you were able to uncover something about this photo that hadn't been uncovered before. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that the original photo uh, was has been analyzed by many people, including Bruce McAbee, probably most notable, who who went in there, went to the UCL or to UCLA archives, which has all of um, the old LA Times. Uh, photos in their in their record collection and he looked at the the uh, negative and he made some observations that it looked as if the one that appeared in the uh, LA Times had been touched up and so we knew that they actually took some of those search beams and they made them brighter they actually defined the skyline a little bit more and this was kind of like the early days of Photoshop you know they wanted their pictures to be um, more vibrant, more more detailed, and so they would take photos and touch them up. Well, especially a photo like that—that's a nighttime photo where there's not a lot of detail. Exactly, and then you print it in black and white in a newspaper, and yeah, um, you know, like well, of course everything was was black and white, but but you lose a lot. So we were under the impression everyone just took it for granted that this was the original negative, but while it was there. Um, with the uh, Simon, who's the archivist there at uh, UCLA, we just happened to be looking under um, a, kind of like a magnifier at these slides, and I noticed that the slides had what we call a notch code, which is a little kind of a divot that they make in the side of the, the film. And I don't remember if he pointed it out or I did, but we noticed it was different. Then all the other um, slides and negatives that were in the same collection. So this um, this photographer Calvert had um, kind of a package. He was doing a kind of like an exposition on the army during the war at the time in L.A. So he had all these photos of different barracks and places that he visited, and then this slide from the battle of LA was, was kind of slipped in or next to the same negatives. And we assumed that he was the photographer, which we don't even know now if he was. And this one is different because the notch code is, is basically just a little rectangular divot that looks different than the others. So we wondered, okay, well, what does this mean? We took it to a specialist who used to work for the LA Times, and he has a little chart. We looked up the notch code, and what we found, if uh, if you can kind of, you know, think through this and understand what what it's kind of a little difficult to explain, but we have a negative. If you want to make a copy of a negative, in in order to to do that, you're actually taking another piece of film um, of contact paper and putting it underneath it. But what happens when you make a copy of a negative is you get a positive. So the polarity, the black and white is all switched around, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. if you want to make a copy of a negative, you have to use another type of film that reverses it back again. 
So I want a copy to look just like this negative I have in my hand. And that's what it was. So this was not the original negative. It's a copy of the negative. And during that, that whole process, it's very possible to, again, touch up the, the negative or do something to it. And the very fact that we didn't possess the original negative to me says, why not? You know, did somebody come and take it? Was it confiscated? Um, did somebody lose it? And if we only had one, that might also explain why uh, it's very possible we, we have other pictures that are floating around out there. If this was such an amazing event, I find it hard to believe that the photographer uh, gets up, gets the call, drives down to this lookout point, which we're not quite sure where it was in the city, starts taking photos, and he only takes one. Yeah, especially since he's not just doing a point-and-shoot camera. I mean, you've got to take the time to set up that old box camera or whatever he was using. <laughs> yeah, and we're talking possibly a several-minute exposure. Yeah. And, and when you do that, those lights converging where they were, um, if you move those lights around, you're going to get a whole lot of blur. You're also going to have a whole lot of blur in the object. So what this tells me with that exposure is this object pretty much was hovering um, and staying stationary for at least long enough, that picture could have been taken. And I'm guessing there's probably a good number of other photos out there. Is there no record of who the photographer was? There's not. Hmm. We've uh, we've contacted the Associated Press. Mm -hmm. We went back in their archives. And, and all we know is that L.A. had a, um, a photographer who was kind of like a the, the way the Associated Press worked is, is you have a photographer who kind of wears two hats. So he's kind of like a liaison affiliated with the Associated Press. And that photographer did work for L.A. Times because that's how the AP News got it from the L.A. Times. So we're dealing with a, a, a photographer for, for uh, the L.A. Times, but we don't know who it was. And, um, I mean, we could go on and on and talk about what we're trying to track down right now, but... But um, I think if we found that photographer and found maybe his uh, kids or grandkids somewhere in someone's collection, they're probably sitting on something. They don't even realize, wow, look, Grandpa took other pictures of this really famous event, and maybe he's got copies of it here. Or he was busy that night, and they sent some intern to take the photos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is why no name is on record, because he was a nobody. Right. <laughs> Could be, you know, but as far as we know that um, UCLA, they don't have any other photos of the event. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had time and they'd let me, I would just go rummaging around there and looking in the different boxes to see. Um, I might I might actually do that and ask them if they'd let me because the, it's very you know easy for them to misplace um, a negative and just put it in another box. He claims to me when they got it from the LA Times, it's exactly as how they got it from them in the same boxes, you know, so who knows? Uh, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of uh, slides. Well, if you do that, Ben, if you go and sit and do that, you have to periscope it and I will watch that. <laughs> That'd be, uh, it's like 10 hours of periscoping straight. Right. As, as long as it's in night vision, Ben. <laughs> that would be pretty entertaining. So it's pretty exciting that, a case as old as this one has some new life breathed into it, really. 
the, a, a new development like this. So it's exciting yeah. that there's something else to go after. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're on it. It is, it is. It's, it's kind of that, you know, that never ending chasing, you know, that unreachable <laughs> star though. I just kind of feel like at some point, even if we succeed, what, what do we win? What do we gain? Mm. And, um, the event already was spectacular and difficult to explain. I'm not sure if finding something new, like a, a very clear photo of an object, it'd be very interesting, but you're still going to have the same number of people saying, okay, well, that's a plane of some sort that's on fire. Or so maybe they did down a Japanese plane. So what? Right. It's another another piece of the puzzle that opens more questions. Yep. Very true. Well, Ben, this is really cool. Uh, we wish you the best of luck uh, with tracking this down and finding more out about it. I hope you do find something more. That'll be really cool. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. This has been a lot of fun. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, glad that you're still hard at work at uh, trying to, to delve in some of these mysteries that I am. So I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up a little bit later at some event. You bet. Definitely. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. All righty. UFOs Declassified airs on the Smithsonian Channel, so check your listings to see if that's a channel you get and see when it airs. Thanks again to Ben Hansen for talking with us today, and thank you for hanging out with us. If you have a UFO sighting or story you want to share with us, we'd love to hear it. If you've got something you want to share, use the contact form on our website, rogueplanet.tv, and send those to us. And again, the show is on iTunes. Subscribe and leave a stellar review if you enjoy the show. Thanks again for joining us today. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Maureen Ellsbury. Thank you for letting us manipulate your mind this week. 